You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. And Evergen, powering the transition to a resilient, renewable, decentralised energy system of the future. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Energy Insiders and what could be the very last episode of the year. My name is Giles Parkinson, I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me at the end of 2020 is ITK analyst David Leach. David, how are you? Giles, I'm well. Uh, Looking forward to the Christmas break. It's been a long year for all of us, I think, and I'd like to welcome our special guest today. Absolutely, yes. Look, I'm taking an opportunity in our final episode of the year to welcome Stephen Hamilton. He's the Chief Economist from Blueprint, which is a newly emerging conservative think tank, which has just released a very interesting report on the energy transition, which we'll get to soon, and um, is also an um, Associate Professor of Economics at the George Washington University in the US. Stephen, welcome to this podcast. G'day, guys. How are you? We are very well. Look, we might as well just dive straight into your report because I thought it was a fascinating one. Um, I picked it up. I, 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 I read it. Um, it struck a lot of bells, that um, the sort of thing that we've been writing about, um, not just this year, but for previous years. Um, but it comes out of a conservative institute backed by a bunch of former liberal politicians, and maybe that's the key definition, um, former liberal politicians. Just give us an overview for those who haven't actually read our reports and other reports about it. Um, what were your main conclusions? Yeah, so around oh, six or eight weeks ago, we released a, a sort of energy uh, program launch, right? So we, we sort of wanted to attack this energy transition question uh, in, a, in a holistic way. And we sort of thought, okay, what? how should we frame that? So we framed it around you know, net zero by 2050, which is sort of the emerging benchmark across the world in terms of, you know, emissions reductions we want countries to, to, to commit to. And in fact, really, we probably need even more more than the net zero by 2050, but that's a good start. And then as a down payment on net zero by 2050, we recognized that, you know, this notion of using carryover credits uh, to reach our 2030 Paris target was was really not great and, and really would enable Australia not to reduce its emissions at all over the next decade. So we sort of called for the government to, you know, meet its Paris commitment and that, and that involved a kind of 15% emissions reduction this decade. Um, now, 15% doesn't sound like much, but given that our uh, energy sector is probably where most of those gains are going to come from and our energy sector is around a third of emissions, a 15% emissions cut overall means a sort of almost a 50% emissions cut in our electricity. Steve, can I, I so, just interrupt there? Uh, sorry, uh, but you know, it, I've, um, your, your maths is, is no doubt infinitely better than mine, but that doesn't make it very good necessarily. Um, I was just looking myself at the, if we went in a linear fashion from 2020 down to 2050, I got up to 17 million tonnes a year that we needed to reduce and, and more like 150 million tonnes and, and going on for a third of total emissions by 2030 rather than the 15% you mentioned. Uh, do you just want to clarify that 15% so I can fix my sums? Yeah, no, your sums aren't wrong. But I guess the question is, what's the optimal path from here to net zero? And, and it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to argue the optimal path is linear. Um, and that's because there's option value in delaying to some degree, right? We may come up with 
some technological improvements in the future that you know that mean that the the, the mitigation can happen later at, at lower cost so that's not to say we should do so linear is probably too aggressive but at the same time doing nothing for the next decade like the existing um forecasts were four percent reduction which is more or less nothing uh clearly that's not optimal it's kind of nuts to think we do nothing for 10 years and then we do the, the other 96 percent over the following 20 years so we 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 chose you know the government's commitment is is that 15 percent reduction right without kyoto credits so that's a good start and in it, and the point we wanted to make is you can do it and you can do it actually relatively easily, but you have to, you know, realistically focusing on the electricity sector is a, is a pretty good idea because a 50% reduction in electricity emissions is, is absolutely doable. Um, and so having laid that down as a kind of benchmark for action this decade, we, we, we you know, it's easy for us as this, these uh, think tankers to say, you know, chuck away your carryover credits. It's, it's harder to come up with a plan. And so with our first report in this series, we wanted to lay out a plan for how you might go about that 50% reduction in electricity. Um, and as, as you guys know, it's not rocket science. Uh, it means shutting down a bunch of coal-fired power stations in Australia. Uh, so the, the report sort of lays out a, a process uh, for how that might, might occur. Yeah, and so I guess that's the uh, key thing. Uh, it's the variety, if you like, in, in, in the actual mechanism for getting there. But um, uh, So let's fi finish on that, and then I'll, I'll come back to the politics of it after uh, where Blueprint <laughs> fits into the politics. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, but let, let's just finish in on, on the mechanism. I think you uh, propose a, a form of uh, closed envelope auctions, uh, yep. don't you? Can you just um, run us briefly through the main features of that? Yeah, so the, the, the priority really is, uh, uh, you know, every time you talk to anyone in the, in the energy space, consumers, investors, communities, workers, every single one of those groups, what they actually want is some degree of certainty or predictability about the future, right? I mean, you talk to a coal worker and they know, you know, a, a worker in a coal-fired power plant, they're well aware that their job isn't going to be around in 20 years, right? I mean, it's not a surprise to them. The issue for them is when is it going to end? Nobody knows, right? So could it end next year? Could it end in a decade? None of these groups have certainty about their future, right? So we have this terrible situation with the electricity market in Australia where the various groups involved are under this cloud of uncertainty. And, you know, that's bad for all for basically for everything right it means high prices it means you know potential for supply disruptions it means you know, a, you know weird sort of investment blockages you know all sorts of bad things right it's not it's not good so on the other hand you know we we we, we sort of see state governments doing a whole lot of ad hoc scattershot kind of uh interventions in the electricity market all over the country because they've all committed to these emissions reductions so you have this sort of crazy situation in the electricity market where you have sort of renewables being forced in but then that's making a lot of the coal plants unviable but then you know no politician is willing to say well yes we've committed to 50 percent renewables by 2030 but that's going to involve a lot of coal closures right so no one's willing to stand up and say that so sort of the main thrust of our paper is to say everyone needs to acknowledge the elephant in the room a lot of these coal plants are not you know long for this world someone needs to take responsibility right mm. 
I guess Matt Keane from New South Wales might be the closest politician we've found to actually coming up and sort of acknowledging this at least and sort of um, looking for a solution. So that's um, half the uh, party one. But as um, you pointed out, he's a state energy minister, not the federal energy minister. Yes. And I guess that's where the problem lies. I've just got a question about the mechanism because what you suggest is having an auction. So basically seeking, um, you know, where people will sort of bid for payments. Um, I'm guessing this is kind of roughly based, I don't know whether it's based on or inspired by or just coincidental with the fact that the Germany has just done this yeah. and they got bids in from a whole bunch of coal companies. It ended up being a lot cheaper than what they expected because yes. basically all these coal companies, coal generators are quite keen to get out of the market. Yes. Um, well, the fascinating thing was, you know, the two the two plants that won the first auction were uh, less than 10 one. years old. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> but I guess, I guess a lot of people just will say, well, why the hell should we be, why should Why should they be paid at all? I mean, they're probably, yeah. if you think about the damage that the coal industry has done to everything, look, I mean, obviously there's been benefits because it's been providing power for however many years, but um, obviously it hasn't paid for its pollution impacts. Why should we, why Why should they be paid at all? Look, yeah, just so before I Steve answers it... that, I just want to point out about oh, the yeah, German, uh, German situation that if you do some of, read some of the reports into it, you'll find that it was actually expected that the initial uh, uh, bids would be at a very low price, but that as, as time goes on, the, the cost uh, is going to go up a lot for subsequent auctions. Mm. Um, uh, I'll, I'll just hand over. I, I have my own views on why why uh, it would be wise to have an orderly uh, coal station closure plan rather than a disorderly yeah. one, mainly to reduce right. risk. But I'll hand over to Steve. Yeah. So I mean, I think the priority for us, you know, we, uh, like we thought, okay, what we need is we know where the end point is. In in ten years, we're going to have you know fifty percent less coal emissions. And because we've got a, some very emissions intensive coal plants like in Victoria, that means a more than 50% reduction in coal electricity generation, right? So it's a pretty significant reduction in 10 years. You know where we are now, you know where we need to get to. The ideal would be to have this like nice smooth phase down in capacity from here to then. The question is, how do you do that, right? How do you get this orderly step down in coal, coal, coal generation? So there's a couple of things you want to do. One, you want to make sure that the plants that I guess some combination of a have the lowest economic viability, right, to stay open. You know, you want them to be the ones that go first, subject to making sure that you don't have too many plants that you know in one location going down, so that that sort of undermines reliability. So there's a sort of coordinated planning process that needs to happen to make sure that that's how the process goes. Now. You could have the government put on, you know, government bureaucrats put on their hard hats, go around the country and say, okay, this this plant's the least economically viable, you're first. Or you could, you know, do what England did and just shut them all down, <laughs> right, in one hit. But I, I guess what we thought is, okay, what this is not a new problem. Trying to determine the private valuations of, of companies in terms of their, you know, future that's not a new problem. We have we have a mechanism to to deal with that, and it, it's called an auction, right? So, auction uh, auctions are kind of a, a, a magical thing. In fact, two economists won the economics Nobel Prize this year for their work in auction design. Um, so you can you can design an auction in a in a very sophisticated fashion to kind of generate the desirable outcomes that you want, um, and you know that's the reason. Germany just, is, is just, going just, with that. Just spell process. it out for me in, in three-letter words. Yeah. What 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 do people bid? What the generators bid in the auction, and what mm. private information is it that gets discovered in that process? 
Yeah, so the, the, the way to think about it, something that we, we went to great pains to, to point out in the paper is that you want to separate two, two things. One, ideally what the auction should generate is each plant in the country should reveal to the government what it values staying open in the future at. Like a dollar figure. Tell me, if I was going to shut you down tomorrow, what would you pay to stay open until 2026? 2028 and beyond 2030. What would you pay for that, right? Each plant has a number. They know the truth, right? They know what the value of staying open is. We just want them to tell us and we want them to tell the truth, right? So that's that's what we want to elicit. The, the secondary question is actually what they pay, right? So finding out what they value it at and figuring out what they pay are two separate questions. And so Giles, you, you sort of mentioned why should we allow these plants to stay open? Uh, why should we allow these? Why should we pay these plants to stay open? I, I want to be quite clear. You know, the the mechanism that we propose it, it could I it could go one of two ways, or in fact something in between. Which is, on one hand, the plants could pay to stay open, so the scheme could actually generate money if you wanted to design it that way, or we could pay the plants to close. Like that's and 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 or we could do some combination, right? Where you know, you, you vary the amount of government support that goes into the pot to vary the amount of, you know, investor, the amount of a haircut the investors take. And that's totally a choice for the government. And it's totally something that can be factored into the auction design, just how much money the government wanted to, to devote. So that's a kind of separate question to which plants go and when, right? So I could actually imagine the, the scheme being something you know, the government committing some amount of money that satisfied the industry in terms of, you know, what what they're, you know, how much of a haircut they take and then figuring out something in between, mm. right? I mean, what sort of, what sort of, in terms of, what sort of quantum of money are we talking about? I mean, if we go back to the bad old days of the CPRS, and I think we're talking about a yep. $5 billion check to some of the brown coal generators, which is sort of too much, um, particularly for the Greens and, um, and, and others. I mean, have you sort of crunched those numbers? I mean, do you have like a ballpark figure of what that might be? Might it be in the terms of tens of millions or hundreds of millions or possibly over a billion dollars? That I, I reckon David knows the answer to that question more than I do. But I would just say, you know, the le the less economically viable these plants are, the less economically viable they are, the cheaper it'll be, right? So, you know, there are probably some plants out, you know, if you wanted to go with the scheme, like the reverse auction scheme where we're paying them, you know, there are probably some plants out there who would accept, you know, a pretty small amount of money to, to go, right? Um, better than better than going and getting nothing, right? Um, whereas there are some plants, obviously, that are, that are Pretty, pretty economically viable and maybe have a longer lifespan for whom it would take a lot more money. Um, mm. But I know David knows a lot more about the financial uh, situation in the industry than I do. Yeah, it's complicated. And I, I think even the companies themselves don't really know the value. They have an estimate at a point in time, uh, which is always changing like any other valuation metric. Uh, there are things like closure liabilities, for instance, AGL's yeah. got a... Um, gross value of over a, a billion dollars to to close its new, uh, its coal plants. That's the closure costs. Uh, on the other hand, the Vales Point has a, pretty much a zero closure cost, just hands the uh, plant back to the government, uh, the site back. Uh, and so the, as Steve says, there is a lot of information and each company would have their, that, that opinion uh, better, better themselves, and uh, I, I, you know, the thing, the thing that catches my attention is that 
yes, there's a sort of uh, uh, competitive bidding, so it's not central planning in that sense. And yet, we're not letting the market decide in the, say, in the sense that plants become unprofitable under the spot or futures price thing, and that forces their, uh, their, their exit. So it's yet another subversion of the whole uh, pool price and futures price system that, that uh, currently dispatch is based on. Uh, so that we, we are moving more or less, more and more towards a planned thing. And I do think, I do think as, as this article points out one way or another, that uh, we're moving from a situation of what's going to replace the coal plants. We know the answer to that now, more or less. We're, getting to, we're now into the new question of how do we manage the exit of the coal plants. That, that is one of the key changes in the debate in, in 2020. But Steve, let, let me ask you, uh, you know, this is a form of bidding uh, exit price. I mean, what's your opinion of how this is going to be received at a federal government uh, level politically? It's very difficult. I mean, I, I, I here's the way I see it. I mean, I think there has been, so you, you just kind of touched on it, which is the whole game has changed a lot in the last 10 years, right? So if we'd done this report 10 years ago, we would be calling for the federal government to, you know, make a pretty radical change to the to the outlook of the industry. Whereas I think something to recognize is it's not for the federal government to decide to end coal generation, right? The, the, this scheme, the, the Angus Taylor, Scott Morrison could get up tomorrow and announce this scheme and they wouldn't be announcing the end of the coal generation industry. That has already happened, right? So the, Queensland has said 50% renewables by 2030. Uh, Victoria said the same. South Australia said 100%, right? Uh, and Matt Keane has a really detailed plan for radically reducing coal generation in New South Wales. So, and, and quite aside from that, in the last 10 years, the, the, the cost of solar energy has fallen by a factor of 10, right? So the, the sort of the whole economics of the industry and the initiatives of state governments have sort of put the nail in the coffin of the coal generation industry. So it's not the federal government's role to say, okay, we're ending the industry. It's the federal government's role to coordinate a safe, gradual phase down, right? So that the whole thing doesn't collapse so that we don't have all of these really deleterious effects like supply shortages, price spikes. So workers and communities are protected, right? All of these things are actually, I think, positive political stories for the government, right? They don't need to focus on emissions. They don't need to focus on killing the coal generation industry. They need to focus on you know, supporting the industry through this inevitable phase down. And so someone, you know, I was talking to a journalist about this the other day and they said, oh, well, what would you, what would you tell, you know, a politician in, a, in, a, in one of these seats? I, I would say it's much more politically dangerous to do nothing than to do something, right? I mean, if Scott Morrison and Angus Taylor are in power for the next five years, you know, there's going to be more uh, coal closures between now and then. And, and th these sort of things are going to happen on their watch. Are they going to stand by and do nothing? That sort of seems politically untenable to me. Mm. So the, the politicians that are behind this um, think tank, um, maybe just tell us who they who they are. And um, how did they, um, when you sort of, I mean, presumably you did this report, or maybe they, they asked for this report to be done, um, tell me what their reaction was. And from that, um, what do you sort of see as the political challenge um, going forward? Yeah, so the, I mean, the Think Tank Blueprint Institute is not you know, formally politically aligned in any sense, right? So we're a, an independent research institute. You know, we, we have, we're, we're effectively a charity, right? So we do, you know, 
research, policy research, and, and I've got to be honest, when I, when, I, when, I come up, when I think about how to devise these policy solutions, I don't think at all about ideology, right? I think about what is a pragmatic solution uh, to, to, a, to a policy problem. So, and we've done a lot of work in a, in a range of areas and energy is one of the ones we're interested in because it's been so fraught, right? It's, we, we've failed over and over again to find a kind of comprehensive solution to this problem. Um, so our positioning on, I guess, the center right, as opposed to someone like Grattan, who might, you might think of as on the center left, you know, what, what we see our, our, our positioning as is, you know, uh, this gulf on the on the sort of think tank space between say Grattan and out, out on the on the further right CIS or the IPA, there's sort of nothing in that space in, in in terms of think tanks, right? There's no intellectual independent intellectual thought that you know represents that viewpoint, and so we you know the formation of our think tank came about to kind of fill that gap, right? So it, it sort of came following you know the bushfires and and thing, things that happened earlier this year. I think there was a lot of uh, a push to, to, to try and provide an intellectual rudder or a more intellectual heft to the kind of center-right uh, pro, pro project, right? So, um, you know, we have some uh, former liberal politicians on our board, uh, sorry, on our strategic council, so that, you know, they don't have any formal decision-making capacity, but they, you know, we talk to them and they give us advice, people like Robert Hill and Christopher Pine. Um, but yeah, I, I would say, I think that you know, as someone who believes in markets, you know, I mean, I'm not a member of any political party, but I, I really strongly believe in the power of markets to produce good outcomes, but, but with a pragmatic kind of lens over that. I've wanted something like this to exist in Australia for a really long time. So I'm just extremely glad that, that my colleagues, um, Harry Guinness is our CEO, who used to work for Julie Bishop uh, and others, you know, were willing to, to pull it together. Okay, okay, and so uh, I guess uh, when it comes down to it, though, I mean, actually, the uh, politics at federal level is is run by the Queensland Nationals, uh, and I don't, <coughs> uh, from my personal perspective, uh, see them supporting any think tank uh, um, because they already know everything. So there's no need for them to think about it. Uh, but you probably don't see it that way. I'm no comment on that, David. But I, I would say the following, which is. Every single coal plant in Australia is in a safe seat. Every single one. Um, now, however, there are three federal seats currently held by independents that are normally held by liberals. Okay, and there's a number of other seats all across the country currently held by liberals that are under threat. Places like Wentworth, right, in Sydney and, and a number of others. So to my mind, to think that ignoring climate change is in the political interests of the Liberal Party, I think is crazy. Uh, I think liberals understand that. Uh, and, and that's why we're seeing this sea change towards action. I mean, I think you'll notice the Prime Minister's language has changed quite a bit in the last month, right? I think he's started to say things like net zero at, at, as soon as possible, right? So the language changing has been something really noticeable. Uh, it, ha and it has, Steve. And, and, and you know, you speak about uh, liberals in marginal seats. I see that just today there was a delay. Uh, the nationals have been calling for an inquiry into why banks and finance uh, aren't doing more to support, well, uh, you know, uh, making things difficult for people that work in the coal industry. And uh, one of the people on the committee uh, that would recommend the terms of reference is, I think, uh, Dr. Katie Allen, who is a Liberal 
in a yes. marginal Victorian seat who has a strong interest in climate change. She does, and those yeah. terms of reference are not being agreed to. Uh, so, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm not quite sure what to make of that, but I, I, my personal feeling, I agree with you that there's been a, a sentiment shift at a federal level, but I'm still not sure that it actually amounts to anything uh, that would, say, get to supporting a policy such as the one that you're proposing. So we have, I mean, we have the Glasgow climate, climate meetings in November, right? So there's already been a lot of foreign diplomatic pressure on the government to move, right? To, and to, to back these targets with real action, right? Not just rhetoric. It's not enough to sign up to a target. You actually have to do something. You have to commit to a, a medium-term plan. Obviously, the government has its, you know, technology roadmap, which is a medium to long-term plan. What we're really lacking in Australia is a sort of short to medium emissions reduction framework, right? So some sort of market-oriented mechanism that can actually get the the, the, the whole emissions reduction uh, thing happening. So I would suspect between now and Glasgow, so over the next nine months, I think the government will probably move to some degree uh, in, in you know to try and address this address this gap I mean I, I would hope so so our you know our think tank you know really what we're trying to do in the lead up to Glasgow is inform the thinking around you know what a center right kind of market oriented philosophy how how you would solve some of these policy problems you, you know from that perspective so we're sort of uh, addressing what we see as the various impediments to at least the next 10 years in, in transitioning the, the electricity sector. So things like the coal, coal phase down, things like you know regional economic development in these areas, things like market design around the regulation of transmission infrastructure and governance of the electricity market. Uh, and then sort of thinking of a, a, a medium term, you know, economy-wide emissions reduction sort of framework that could actually start to drive greater greater yeah, like, uh, mitigation like a carbon price like they've got in europe you know for instance but <laughs> that's an economy-wide thing and i'm glad you mentioned that because i must say i would have uh, uh you know in some ways whilst i i think your scheme is that you propose is, is admirable and much more sophisticated than something I could have thought of myself, I would say that in electricity, I personally think that the future is, is already written uh, fairly clearly and the state governments have essentially reduced the need for the federal government to do, uh, to do things and I think that will continue and I think the other problems uh, within the decarbonisation in electricity are, are much more technical and things where AEMO uh, needs to really lift its game in terms of, for instance, um, uh, uh, getting solving the inertia and lower vo voltage and frequency issues by getting on with some technical work in, in grid-forming inverters and batteries and vi virtual synchronous machines. These are, you know, and, and, and system software. These are, I think, very important areas. Mm. But uh, only, only thing I would say, only thing I would say there, David, is, you know, the Queensland government has a 50% renewable target by 2030. Do you know which plants of the six Queensland coal stations they're going to close? I've got a fair idea. And well, we you've got an—they're not—they haven't told anyone, right? So, this is kind of the problem: is no one's willing to say it. It's you know, you can have a target, but that target has clear implications. If you're going to have fifty percent renewables, then you've got to have a hell of a lot less coal. No, I, I agree and, with that. And we need Steve. a plan. I agree for with that. that. Right? I agree with everything in your report. I, I, I to that to that extent, <laughs> I, I agree. Are you sure? <laughs> I, I do agree. 
But I was going to go on and say the bigger problems. I mean, in the very end, electricity is only a third of emissions, very broadly yeah, speaking. Yes. Uh, and, and, you know, it's doing something about like, uh, for instance, uh, 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 fuel standards and things like yes. that, where, where yeah, the progress vehicles, is yes. so glacial. And yes. Australia's interest by doing something, uh, you know, it, it would be so much in Australia's self-interest to reduce yes. our oil imports. It just, uh, and, and yet I see nothing happening. Absolutely. And that's why I guess I feel so, um, um, uh, I lack confidence that there is any yep. real will. So I would say, you know, the electricity sector, clearly low-hanging fruit, fairly solvable problem in terms of policy, you know, and, and it wasn't, Again, it wasn't rocket science to come up with the scheme that we came up with. There's going to be a lot. It's going to be a much harder task in a lot of other sectors. So even vehicles is actually a fairly easy to solve problem, but we've got to start doing stuff. But industry and agriculture, you know, reductions there are going to be really tough. So we have to, if we don't start soon to start driving, you know, emissions reductions in those sectors to try and do it, you know, later, but at a much faster pace, I think is going to be really hard. So you know, that puts pressure on the government, you know, coming up with some kind of medium term framework to, to reduce emissions. And I, I would note, I mean, this is something not a lot of people know, but Tony Abbott introduced an emissions trading scheme. Uh, he did. No, not a lot well, of people know that we have one, but we do have one. Uh, it's just that it currently caps emissions at 100%. And <laughs> it, it covers like 250 firms in Australia, uh, the safeguard mechanism, and it's capped at 100%. And it wouldn't be that hard to take that scheme and start reducing that emissions baseline to start driving emissions reductions. No, I agree with that too. And, and that's well known. And that's been known for years, Steve. And it's been pointed out by, uh, by a number of uh, consulting firms. And we agree with all that. And yet here we are years later. So Indeed. look, I, I, I think to some extent, um, you know, given that it's Christmas and uh, we, we should, we need to keep moving and do a little reflecting, don't we, Giles, on, on uh, you know the, the, everything else as well. Uh. Well, that's right. Well, let's um, let's just use this occasion and thanks very much, Steve, for a fascinating um, 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 interview. Hey, just one very quick question. I mean, um, the story rated really highly on our website. We had a, like a headline: um, Conservative um, think tank suggests you know um, an auction for coal closures. And I think there's a lot of headlines that are broadly familiar in, in in other sort of left-leading and sort of centrist um, mm. publications. Um, did you see the same sort of headline in any of the um, Murdoch press at all? I haven't checked. Uh, not that I can tell. We have uh, um, we had a great some great coverage in the Australian Financial Review, and that's not a Murdoch Press, but it's a you know they're sort of a centre right publication, mm -hmm. I think. So um, they they had good coverage. But um, look, I don't know. I, I don't think a lot of the, the the right end of the spectrum is, is sort of willing to come to terms with this with this There's, this there, issue. And and, and 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 that itself tells a bit of a story about the year, doesn't it? Because when I look back at the year, and I'm going to probably throw this question to sort of David and then to you, Stephen is um, if you think about the major things which happened in 2020, and look, there's probably a whole bunch of different events, um, projects, you know, the biggest solar farm, the biggest wind farm, um, more big battery storage, battery storage everywhere, just about um, at least some sort of increase in uptake of electric vehicles and other things like that. But for me, I guess one of the big things that happened during the last year, and it's kind of brought out by your paper, this is a sort of, you know, a um, centre-right think tank talking about coal closures 
and embracing renewables and the inevitability of the energy transition. We're seeing that in Liberal state governments too. You know, Labor was ridiculed for having a 50% renewable energy target and hey presto, we've got a South Australian Liberal government going for 100%. We've got a Liberal government in Tasmania going for 200% by 2040. South Australia trumping that with 500% by 2050. New South Wales government coming out and saying, look, the coal is going to close. Let's have a plan to deal with it. And here it is much to everyone's admiration, and making it bipartisan. For me, David, I think that was probably the biggest thing of the year, was the bringing together the movement by consumers, state governments, institutions, consumers, business, financiers. It seems to me that there is just this small rump, and perhaps there's even a small rump within the government, that seems unwilling to move. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. And I think we can look internationally and see this is a year when uh, uh, there was further sh shift towards the uh, acceptance, uh, moving out of the denial phase, if you like, and into the acceptance phase. Uh, Europe's led the way for years. They have a carbon price, which I think every economist agrees is the, uh, is the simplest and best way to, to manage uh, carbon across an economy. Uh, and, and they've lifted the, their ambition in that regard. Um, we've, we've seen a shift in tone coming out of uh, Japan very recently and, they, uh, um, and, and changes in emphasis in South Korea and Vietnam. Uh, of course, we've had a renewed commitment in China, but uh, it's hard to know how seriously to take that. But I think Europe leads the way. and We've seen electric vehicle policies being uh, adopted in Europe, in, in South Korea, in, in, in Japan, uh, and renewed policies in China. So. Uh, quite a lot of progress there, but I think if we come back to Australia, we could talk about the uh, wind and solar and rooftop sector has been 20% essentially for the entire 12 months. It's currently 25% in, in, uh, uh, in, in, the, in the last 30 days, but this is seasonally strong. Uh, there's a whole bunch of new projects uh, to come online. We saw, we saw electricity prices in the spot market falling very sharply, uh, and that's reflecting on tough times for, for the coal generators, uh, it, despite the fact that coal prices are low and, uh, and gas prices are low. Um, but um, I guess, uh, and we'll come, we should come back to the hydrogen and battery stories because, you know, this is a year where the hydrogen uh, uh, affair uh, has, uh, people have worldwide have tried to rekindle that, but I think it's uh, another one of those where there's going to be a lot of dating before uh, uh, anyone gets to uh, <coughs> third base. Uh, it's been the year when batteries have uh, moved into uh, widespread acceptance uh, in Australia and in the United States and increasingly in Europe. But, uh, you know, when you, when you talk about the uh, think global and act local type of philosophy that underpins what I think are a lot of the best initiatives in almost any sector, uh, what we see most of all is the rooftop solar thing where the prices have uh, fallen about 20% as far as after the subsidy over the past two years uh, on what was already a cheap sector. So the prices now are down around, you know, 85, 90 cents a kilowatt for a seven kilowatt system. And we saw, rather than the sort of fall back in growth uh, that we expected to see, we've actually seen uh, something like three gigawatts, which is an acceleration this year. And, you know, we never talk about it very much, but it's becoming a more and more dominant force in the whole electricity production system. And it's one of the many reasons why I think that we need to think harder about the software and the way to make it all work and the, the orchestration, which is a great term. 
and then we need to move beyond that orchestration within electricity in, in uh, production into the demand for electricity and start orchestrating that demand uh, sector-wide and, and, and fostering the growth of electrification of many industrial heat processes. But uh, uh, that journey, uh, we really haven't even got it up on the sat-nav yet. <laughs> well done, Dave. That's, um, that's great. I mean, I've got to say that was, you know, I've been quite gratified by the way the institutions and the regulators are now sort of seeing rooftop solar not as a problem, but as a potential part of the solution and sort of looking quite creative or constructively at that orchestration, as you say, and there's a bit of a way to go there. Um, Stephen, just very quickly, um, we could mention the trading partners, um, Biden's victory in the US. I mean, you're obviously associated with George Washington University, so maybe you have some insight here. I mean, what for you were the key things that have happened over the last 12 months? Yeah, so I'd say a couple of things. One, I mean, I, I worked on the Ghana Review as a Treasury analyst back in 2010, so it's been a decade. Uh, it's funny because we're writing these reports on on decarbonisation, a blueprint, and, and the topics are almost identical, right? <laughs> All of the issues that we talked about a decade yes, ago indeed. are more or less still there, <laughs> right? But the one really amazing difference is is that the technological improvements in that decade are, are really remarkable and the, the, the cost reductions in renewables are just staggering, right? So we're no longer having to force the coal out. The sort of technology is doing it on its own, right? I mean, it, the coal just can't compete basically. So that's a huge change in the last decade. Uh, the other thing I would say is this feeling of inevitability is something that I think has really, really crept in. So I think everybody even on both sides of politics are starting to understand that this transition is inevitable and that the the key is that the political battleground will be who is able to better manage that inevitable transition so i think hopefully in, in the year you know in the next three to five years we're going to start to see a reorienting of the of the discussion um which should make us feel pretty optimistic about about climate quickly i would just say on on the diplomacy thing we wrote our report calling for net zero and the week we released it japan and south korea signed up for, to net zero by 2050 so you know the dominoes falling <laughs> pretty incredible that's fantastic the great feeling of being a catalyst um Indeed. david i'm just going to throw back at you and just ask you for some predictions for 2021 i don't know whether um i've given you no forewarning of this so you can have to sort of make it up on the spot but um I'm sure you'll come up with something. Well, you know, uh, uh, predictions are pretty stupid. Uh, business at the best of times. Uh, I guess the, the sun will come up tomorrow would be about as strong as I really want to go. Um, uh, however, what we would say is that uh, we expect electricity prices to be broadly in the spot market, to be broadly in line with where the futures price is predicting them to be. That is uh, uh, a little lower than, than this year. Um, uh, then, uh, as I said, spot prices in Victoria halved over the past 12 months. We expect about two and a half gigawatts of uh, um, utility scale wind and solar to be commissioned in calendar 21, um, ahead of another gigawatts more in, in calendar 22. Um, I was trying to guess at what uh, rooftop solar installations we'll get in calendar 2021. Uh, if it was three gigawatts across Australia, including WA in, in uh, this last year, I doubt if we can do another three gigawatt year, but with the scaling up of solar in China, which will take time, you can expect to see the learning rate effect still still happening. And China is going to increase its solar output enormously, and that should flow through to plenty of panels at relatively low prices in Australia. And I'm going to make a prediction, which is right out there, that we will see some more work done in the grid forming inverter and virtual synchronous machine things. 
uh, because it's just uh, where there's a need, in my opinion, there's generally going to be an answer. In terms of electric vehicles, I saw on, uh, I, I'm, I would like, I would, my Christmas wish is that the Australian government, federal government would actually announce some sort of sensible, forward-looking strategic direction and policy that any centre-right or centre-left or indeed anyone who understands anything about economics could actually subscribe to. Uh, but uh, I, I must say I'm still not wildly optimistic about that. You still believe in Santa, in other words. Um, interestingly, the Liberal government from South Australia came out last weekend and aimed for 100% um, electric vehicle um, sales by 2035. Um, not a law, but a, um, an ambition, but that's been the story of their transition over the last 10, 15 years, which was pretty impressive, and also for a fuel standards policy, which I think is absolutely essential. Stephen, very briefly, um, any particular predictions for this coming year? Well, I reckon there'll be at least one, but multiple coal plant closures announced Ooh. in the next year. Uh, and the second thing is I think the government will sign up to net zero by 2050 ahead of Glasgow and maybe a strengthening of their 2030 emissions target. And perhaps even, and this is maybe a little optimistic, is some kind of movement towards one of these you know, medium term emissions reduction frameworks. So that, that would be my cherry on the top if... Uh, 2021 goes uh, as planned. Steve, you, you remind me of uh, you know the difference between an analyst and and uh, and and someone who um, uh, you know the, the problem for an analyst is not is to forecast what will happen, not what they want to happen. But I hope I certainly hope you're right. <laughs> a couple of those were what I think will, and a couple and one one at the end was what I would like. But we'll see. Oh, very good. Look, I think we're going to end up on that nice positive note. Um, first of all, I'd just like to um, thank Steve for um, joining us today. Um, um, great having you on board. I'd like to thank all our listeners for coming um, on board for the whole year. Look, I think we've gone um, well over half a million um, downloads this year, which is um, a fantastic effort. Um, and it's a niche, um, it's a niche subject, but um, it has, um, it, it, look, it's just been great getting your feedback and, um, and your positive comments and even and your constructive comments um, over the year. I'd like particularly to thank our sponsors through the year, particularly in the last six months, Evergen and um, Pylon, um, who are both coming back next year, which is fantastic. And most of all, I'd like to thank our producers, the people who work on this podcast, the producer, Anne, who um, helps organise these things and make us sound good. And to you, David, for being on the other side of the microphone um, with some provocative and sort of insightful questions and great subject ideas. And um, it's been a pleasure and I look forward to going through it all over again in 2021. Yeah, me too. And I, I'd like to thank all of our guests who've uh, freely donated their time, uh, uh, including Steve, but, but many other notable guests uh, during the year, as regular listeners will, will know. And I'd also like to thank Anne Delaney, our producer, because it's a pretty thankless task uh, trying to get uh, these interviews organised at uh, all times of the days and weeks and with various technical problems with uh, people dialing in from all over the place, including around the world. So <laughs> cheers and let's look forward to next year. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then just one final shout out to the rest of the staff at Renew Economy and also the Driven REV website. Um, fantastic year this year. Sort of, um, we're kind of beaten down a bit by the COVID response. Everybody was reading the internet and just looking at um, virus stories. But we ended up with more than 20 million page views um, over the two publications um, for the whole year, which was about a 30% increase over last year. So that's fantastic. And um, thanks for all the readers. And we'll be back again at the towards the end of January. Have a great um, holiday period. Stay safe, stay well, and we'll talk again soon. Bye for now.
Energy Insiders was brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises the performance of residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy of the future.